I'm Gabriel Spitzer. This is Transmission. Today's episode, The Hardest Hit. Early on in Washington's outbreak, Dr. Katerina Beeler, a hospitalist at Harborview in Seattle, noticed something. Most of the patients in acute care fighting off COVID-19 needed an interpreter to communicate with doctors and nurses. There's a cultural barrier that is really difficult to overcome, even, you know, using an interpreter. We, we want to make sure that we do what the patient's wishes are. So in case their heart would stop or they would stop breathing, you know, what do they want? So sometimes I'm wondering, yes, I have an interpreter, but what does it actually mean if the patient tells me, no, I don't want this or I want that? So I, I just have a feeling that there's still a big gap that we cannot bridge. In normal times, Harborview treats a diverse population. About 12% of patients need an interpreter. But as the outbreak peaked in the Seattle area, as many as 70% of patients in acute care at Harborview did not speak English. To really get families of these patients to fully understand how ill their loved ones are, Dr. Beeler sometimes brings family members into the hospital to see their sick relatives from a distance with their own eyes. Because it was difficult to convey that over the phone. As the weeks have ticked by, some clear patterns have emerged. One is that people of color are being affected by this virus at higher rates than white people. In Washington state, the disparities are especially stark among the Latino population. More than a third of the state's COVID-19 patients have been Latino, which is way out of proportion to their share of the general population, just 13 percent. Yakima County, where the population is more than half Latino, has the highest rate of COVID-19 infections in the state. This is what Dr. Julian Perez sees playing out at CMAR Community Health. It's a network of clinics originally founded to care for immigrant farm workers. Dr. Perez works out of White Center, just south of Seattle. About 40 percent of his patients are Latino, yet he says they make up more than 80 percent of the positive COVID tests at his clinic. Dr. Perez recalls one patient who tested positive. At the time, I said, so what's going on in, in, in your work? And she said, well, I work at a restaurant in the area, and everybody there is sick. Everybody's coughing. Uh, we've reported it to the boss. The boss is on vacation and tells us we have to stay there and keep working or else we'll be fired. I said, really? And she said, yeah, please don't tell anybody. I'll be fired. So, of course, what did I do? I went to public health and I told them. And they are investigating that business. And she told me that they're not the only one. She has lots of friends who are working in restaurants and they're under the same types of conditions. And of course, if they're sick, they'll send them home, but they don't send them home very long. They usually call them up two or three days later and say, are you in the hospital? No. Can you come back to work? Yes. Okay. Get back to work. So I, I think there's several things going on out there. We have a large community of people from Latin America who are undocumented and they really want to stay under the radar. They don't like to rock the boat. And they need money to pay rent. And I think that's not a secret. Everybody knows this. And then they come home and they're sick and they spread to their family. Why is this population so vulnerable? And what's being done to prevent things from getting worse? This is what we're digging into today on Transmission. Many factors can put a Latino family at higher risk from COVID-19, but two stand out. Economic pressure to continue working and navigating a complicated healthcare system without a strong grasp of English. 
This was the situation that Tomas and Antonia found themselves in when Tomas got sick with the virus. KNKX's Simone Alisea brings us their story. By the time Tomas Lopez died of COVID-19 on April 2nd, social distancing had taken hold in Washington. But we did not yet know the disparate effects this disease was having on the state's Latino population. With the help of an interpreter, Mercedes D'Antona, I spoke to Tomas's wife, Antonia Zamorano. Antonia tells me she met Tomas more than 20 years ago in Hidalgo, in central Mexico. So I met him in my hometown. Um, he was working, uh, clearing brush from land, and he came to clear my grandfather's land, and that's how I met him, and we became boyfriend and girlfriend. They dated for a few months before Tomas came to the U.S. for the first time. He returned to Mexico about a year and a half later to marry Antonia. After the wedding, they came to the U.S. together. They settled in Pacific, Washington, just south of Auburn. Tomas went to work in construction. Um, after we came to the U.S., um, I had no kids. I had nothing to do at home. So I would cook food and I would bring it to him wherever he was working at. She'd make salsa verde, mole, tamales, and of course, tacos. Soon, his co-workers wanted some, so Antonia would cook for them. Then the neighbors, so she brought them food too. That's how Tacos El Tajin was born. The family now owns two trucks and a restaurant in Algona. Tomas gained a little bit of fame a few years ago when a propane tanker overturned on I-5. The backup lasted for hours and people were getting hungry. So Tomas started slinging tacos as captured by this video that was widely shared at the time. This is how close I am to where they closed the freeway. And I can smell tacos. This, Antonia says, is how Tomas was. She would cook while Tomas dealt with the customers. And, you know, he loved to talk to people. He loved to share with people. He was very friendly. He was very sociable. As the business grew, they had three kids. Along with Tomas's two other children from a previous relationship, Tacos El Tajin became a family affair. He was always with us as a family. The kids, myself, were the most important thing for him. What's remarkable about the way Antonia tells me the story of Tomas getting sick is she puts a date to nearly every event. Well, the first thing that happened was that we got the flu on March 1st. This was one day after public health officials announced the first death from COVID-19 in the United States, when we knew community spread was happening here. Antonia took Tomas to the hospital because she had heard about the coronavirus, and she wondered if that's what he had. But he wasn't tested then, and they went home. So about a week and a half later, by March 8th, I took him to the hospital again um, because he couldn't read really well. 
And they said to him that his lungs were clean and that he was experiencing flu-like symptoms. So we went back home. How did you feel after that second visit? Um, so I felt more confident because they kept saying, don't worry. But um, he even had bruising in his stomach because he was coughing so much. We don't know why Tomas wasn't tested at this point, but this was early in the pandemic. Testing supplies were even more limited than they are now, and patients seeking a test had to check a lot of boxes when it came to their symptoms. It's also worth noting that their second visit was about a week before the state started issuing restrictions on restaurants and other businesses. So Antonia and Tomas kept working. She says nobody told them specifically to stop, and they had to keep going to support the family. We kept working till March 22nd, and he stopped uh, going to Seattle to sell because he wasn't feeling well, so I would go by myself. That lasted for two more days until Antonia also started getting sick. She tried to get Tomas to go back to the hospital, but she says he didn't want to. He expected the doctors to tell them the same thing they had before. Then on March uh, 27th, I saw that he was getting worse and worse. And I said, Tommy, let's go to the hospital. And he said to me, go to the restaurant and bring me the computer because we had to file the sales report by the 28th um, for the month of February. So wait, so the one of the last things he did before going to the hospital was... Um, getting all your paperwork and payroll uh, in order? Yes. Before he left. At this point, you take him to the hospital. What happens then? So uh, we went to the hospital. Uh, we got in and um, he went in. I was not allowed in after we explained how he was feeling. Um and that, that was the last time I saw him. Um, I was able to give him a kiss on the cheek, and then they took him to a room, and I was not allowed in. The week that Tomas was in isolation, Antonia says she was distraught. She says she felt like she never knew what the doctors were doing when he was being sedated or intubated. She says she was the one calling the hospital to check and see how he was. On March 31st, a nurse was able to connect Tomas and Antonia through FaceTime. Tomas couldn't talk, but Antonia was able to talk to him. And I was able to see him for the first time. He put his phone to his ear so I could talk to him. And I was able to see that he was on that bed, that he couldn't move. Um, the doctor said that he was doing well, that he was responding well, that his lungs were at 80%. Then... On Thursday morning, April 2nd, Antonia says she got a call that Tomas was taking a turn for the worst. 
they connected again via FaceTime, and Antonia said goodbye. So we were in that FaceTime call for about an hour. Um, I was really praying to God. And around 10.30, I was told that he was almost gone and there was nothing they could do for him. Tomas died at age 44. Antonia and her mother also tested positive for COVID-19. Her mother even spent some time in the hospital, but she recovered. Antonia says no one else in the family seems to have gotten sick. Life since Tomas's death has been difficult and uncertain. It was more than two weeks before Tomas's family was able to see his body and lay it to rest. The trucks and the restaurant were shuttered for weeks. They began selling food again for takeout earlier this month, but business is slow. And it sounds like Antonia is still not sure how to run it all without Tomas. While I am trying to find my way, you know, um, try to really accept what's what happened and to think about the future, I don't know. He was the engine, the motor for this home, for everything. And he should not have been gone. I just need him so much, you know? There is so much I would love to say to him. Do you know um, what the business, what the future of the business will look like, even vaguely? Well, my my kids are really supporting me um, because at the restaurant, I was just cooking everything and driving the other taco truck. Uh, Tommy was in charge of getting the permits, paying the bills, going to the store. I don't know any about that. I don't speak English, but my kids keep telling me that we can do it and that we're going to be able to get ahead and survive. Are you, do you believe them? Yes. That story from KNKX's Simone Alisea. As we heard earlier from Dr. Julian Perez at CMAR Community Health, the majority of patients testing positive for COVID-19 at his clinic are Latino. Dr. Perez suspects this is because many of his patients work in the service industry and have kept going to work through the pandemic. But Dr. Perez thinks there's something else at play, too. KNKX's Will James picks it up from here. Since March, public health officials have been driving home the same messages. COVID-19 is dangerous, and the best way to prevent it is to stay away from other people. But Dr. Perez says there was a moment when he suspected that message wasn't reaching some of his Spanish-speaking patients. It was after Easter. Most of our patients are Catholic, and uh, the, the sun was out. It was quite beautiful, and I'm quite sure that some of our patients were gathering with family or friends or having barbecues, knowing that they were not supposed to do that, but they felt, well, we'll just, we'll just get away with it you know, this one time. And so we saw a bump 
So there's a little bit of a lag in the disease because it takes maybe three days to set in. It takes about seven days to become uh, severe. So it was about seven days after Holy Week and Easter, we saw a bump. Dr. Perez saw a chance to help his patients before they ever got to his office. It meant stepping out of the clinic and into a role as messenger. This is KKMO We own and operate two radio stations. So we're able to do our own programming. And I, I speak every day around noon. And I do an hour from 11 to 12 every Wednesday. I'm not seeing our Spanish-speaking patients wearing masks. I constantly go in the room and they're not wearing something. I say, can you please cover your mouth and nose? And so there, there is some kind of a public health messaging in that standpoint that's not getting through. Oh, but I don't have a mask. I said, well, do you have a t-shirt? Do you have a bandana? Sock, I'm like, anything. It doesn't matter. You know, just let's cover up because entre todos venceremos, right? The message is if we all do it, it will work. But if we don't, it won't. Even with this high rate of infection in Washington's Latino population, there's a weird bright spot. That high rate of infection is not translating to an equally high rate of death from COVID-19. In fact, Latinos are underrepresented in the death count. There's been no scientific study why. And of course, as we get more accurate data, those numbers might change. But if Latino residents really are dying at lower rates, Dr. Perez has an idea why. Most of our patients that are here are young. Our, our patients tend to be living in dense situations. Uh, a two-bedroom apartment may have two families in it. But they're younger. And so while they're going to get sick more often, they're going to die less. He has another theory, too. Many of the deadliest outbreaks have been in nursing homes. And he says Latinos, for cultural and economic reasons, are more likely to care for an older relative at home instead of in a facility. But Dr. Perez says the death count doesn't capture the pandemic's full toll. There's a message he's trying to get out to younger Spanish-speaking residents. Even if they survive a critical case of COVID-19, the effects could stay with some of them for life. What I want young people to know is that with, with the numbers, like you're saying, to report on numbers, you can say, oh, this percentage of people got sick and this percentage of people died. You know what? We're seeing blood clots in young people. We're seeing strokes. The incredible inflammation that this disease causes is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's ruining the body. It's shutting down kidneys. It's, it's shutting down the lungs. It's causing heart attacks. It's stroking them out. It's clotting their blood. If these people live through this disease, they're going to be disabled for the rest of their lives. I mean, the numbers we see now is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to have a generation of people that are disabled. Yeah, he's trying to scare people. It's what doctors do sometimes to get their patients to take their health seriously. But fear only gets you so far. Dr. Perez tries to mix that dire news with some hope. You know, at the end of the talks, I say, venceremos. Like, we will, we will win. We will beat this thing. It's about hand washing. It's about social distancing. It's about making sure you speak up and, and, and work and make sure that you tell them that you need protections. You need masks. You need gloves. You need, you know, plexiglass screens between you and your, your friends. And if that can't happen, there's a need for organizing. There's a need for reporting to public health. There's a need to use the voice that you have. Not all of our patients feel like they have a voice. If they're undocumented and, and they know they can be fired at, at best case scenario or that their boss can call immigration and have them arrested and put in detention in Tacoma, I mean, those are pretty severe consequences for trying to use your voice. 
If people don't feel safe speaking up, Dr. Perez says there are confidential phone lines they can call and report violations of public health. Throughout the pandemic, there's this thing public health officials have been saying over and over. Even when you feel powerless against this disease, there are things you can do to protect yourself. Dr. Perez is tailoring that message to a specific audience, his patients. For them, in some cases, protecting themselves is literally about power. That story from KNKX's Will James. This episode was produced by Jennifer Wing. Transmission comes to you from the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner and Kevin Kniestead. We had help this week from Simone Alisea and Will James. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. Please consider giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and you can send feedback along with a voice memo recording of what your life is like right now to outreach at knkx.org. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission.